Open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 2. We spent most of 2010 going through Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 to get an understanding of how God sees us, that we are Christ's body here in the earth. We spent most of 2011 answering this question, who is Jesus? We saw in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 16, verse 13, Jesus asked his disciples this, who, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a great prophet, but then he asked the question, who do you say that I am? And we spent most of last year looking at that, and we came to the end of the year looking at who this Jesus is. We began to look at the Jesus who walked on the earth with Peter and James and John, the Jesus that Paul, G, John became so, so close with that at the Last Supper, he, the, he says he's lying there with his head resting on Jesus' chest. We began to see at the end of this last year that the Scriptures tell us that this same Jesus is coming back. We looked at Acts chapter 1 after Jesus, Jesus has literally been ascended into heaven. And the disciples are standing there looking up there in verse 11 of chapter 1 of Acts. They look and two men appear next to them and said, Why? Are you looking up there? This same Jesus, who you just saw raised up, is coming back. Therefore, you go to Jerusalem. He's coming back. And He's coming back soon. And the question we've been looking at is, are you ready? Are you ready? And are we ready as a body of believers? So there are about seven things that we're looking at to, to uh, and I've got to be careful because each week I think some thinking something else to add to it. Uh, but the question is being ready. And the first thing we saw is the first step to being ready is making sure that you're in the body of Christ, making sure that you, have, you are a convert of Jesus Christ, that you have come to Christ, that you have declared Him to be your Savior and your Lord, you've given your life to Him, and that you are born again, because the Bible is as crystal clear as it can get. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Unless you are in Christ, you can be the best person that's ever walked on this earth short of Jesus, and you're not good enough, because the standard the Bible sets, the standard God sets for you and for me, is we have to be perfect as He is perfect. And when you come to the realization of that, the revelation of that, you realize you can't be. And God knew that and made provision for that. And that's why Jesus came. That's why we need a Savior. And so the first step to being ready is making sure you're saved. There are a lot of people in churches this morning that have been in church for years working for the Lord. There are some people in pulpits that aren't saved. Just because you come to church... Just because you read your Bible, just because you pray, just because you serve in ministry, just because you're ordained, just because of all those things does not mean you're saved. Saved is a conversion where you come to Christ, recognize that you are a sinner, that in God's eyes you do not measure up, and the very best day you've ever had is filthy rags, and then you come to Him and call upon Christ to save you. And from that point on, everything you do with God and have with God is strictly on the basis of the cross. That's what Jesus has done for you. But having come past that, we began to look at the next thing to be ready is to wake up. How many of you woke up this morning? <laughs> Some of you didn't raise your hands. <laughs> I was in one of those deep sleeps this morning, and that gentle alarm clock went off, and I went through this process of realizing, I didn't remember what day it was. I was oh, it's Sunday. i got to get up. I can't dawdle around. And, and, and it was a wake-up to realize where I am. Oh, my goodness, to realize what day it was. When you get sometimes into a deep sleep like that, just to realize what day is it. But see, that's exactly where so much of the church is right now. We don't recognize what the spiritual day is and what the spiritual hour is. We think this day is like every other day. 
They kind of all meld together. We live our life one day after another, one day after another, one day after another. And that kind of lulls us into this false sense of, well, tomorrow's going to be there. It's going to be just like today. And Jesus warns in Matthew 24 and 25, and we looked at when we first did this study, we see that Jesus warned. He said, when, that, when it comes, it's going to be a day like every other day. It's going to just be like the days of Noah. They were sowing and reaping, and they were doing their business and doing everything normally, having no idea that this day was going to be like any other day. The flood was coming, and everything was going to change. So we have to be awake. We have to be awake. We have to be awake. Last week, we, turned, we moved things up a little bit because it was our, the first Sunday of the year and because it was just appropriate as we were, had come together as the body of Christ. We talked about uh, one of the principles of the kingdom of God is there's assembly required. You buy a toy, you know, at Christmas time or something, there's a sign on the side, warning, assembly required. And we discovered that Hebrews 10 tells us that as you see the day approaching, there's assembly required. It's assembling together. It's to recognizing how much we need each other. All the more as we see the day coming. We talked about that last week and it's God's provision. It's not just God's provision, it's God's requirement. There are people who think, well, you know, I, listen, I can watch on TV and I can, you know, I can listen to tapes and I can do all that, so I don't need to go and attend a church. But that's not what God says. Now, one of you is right and one of you is wrong. God says we've got to be here and we say we don't need to. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. And I tell you where my bet is. It's on God. He knows how much we need each other and He designed it that way. And we talked about that last time. So today we're going to get into the next reason. The next, the next thing that we need to do in order to be ready. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children... So he's writing to the church... I've read somebody this year that says First John was, was not written to the church. That's just as wrong as it can be. And now, little children, children of God, abide in Him. And when He appears, that's what we're talking about, when He comes back, when He appears that we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. That tells me that when He comes back, For us, every one of us is going to have a response to His showing up. Now listen carefully. This is telling me, because John is telling us here, we have a choice now to prepare for how we're going to respond when He arrives. I think some people who haven't read their Bible think that when he comes back, there's just going to be wonderful rejoicing in the church. And that's where we should be. But notice what he says here. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. That means, this is written to the church. This is not written to unbelievers. It's not talking about when He comes back, the people that don't know Him being ashamed. He's talking about believers, children of God, when He comes back, not reacting with confidence, instead reacting with shame. So I thought the Bible says we've been redeemed from shame. Yeah, we've been redeemed from shame from our past. I'm going to show you in a minute. We're not talking here. He's not talking about whether you're saved or not. But when he comes back, you're going to have a reaction, a response, and that response is going to be based on some things that you control, not the Lord. I'm going to say that even differently. When he comes back, every one of us is going to have a response to his coming back. And that response is totally within our, your control. It's not in your spouse's control. It's not in your parents' control or your children's control. It's in your hands. And as long... Do this. <gasps> now, if you could do that, you still have a chance. 
I told you this story a few weeks ago. If you can wiggle, you can still win. (laughs) As long as you can move, you're alive, then you can do something. So don't hear this today and walk away and say, Oh, no, I'm in trouble. No, this is why God, God, as a loving Father, is speaking to us so that we will be ready. Just as you speak to your children to get them ready for what you know is coming. Oh, I can tell this is exciting. (laughs) Now, here, there's a difference. Notice that we may have confidence. So one option is that when He comes back, we're going to have confidence. There's several places that says He's returning for those who eagerly await His return. But there's a good portion of the church today that's not eagerly awaiting His return. They're saying, oh, don't come back today. And that's the question. Are you ready? What you cannot control is when He comes. What you can control is what happens with you when, you, when He comes. So the question you've got to ask yourself is if he comes back today, am I going to face his coming with confidence or am I going to face it with shame and pull back? That's the question and only you can answer that for yourself. Your spouse can't answer that for you. I can't answer that for you. Your parents can't answer that for you. This is with a matter of your own heart towards God. Where are you this morning? Well, let's move on. If we know He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Now it's going to get nice for a moment. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. So we're not talking about an angry God who's looking over the banister of heaven with a long stick to see if you're out of line this morning. We have a letter written to us by our Father who loves us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. How many of you are a child of God this morning? All right, so He's talking to you and He's talking to me. What kind of love does this Father have that we... Is not just called children of God, because that's kind of an expression. That He should have made us His children. We've talked about this before. I mean, He's God. He can do what He wants to do. So He would have been entirely within His rights to have left us in our sin. He had no obligation to redeem you and me from our sin. Because we sin because we chose to. And so whatever judgment, whatever condemnation would have come upon us for our sin, we would have been entitled to that judgment for it. I remember hearing years ago, watching Billy Graham be interviewed by Larry King. And Larry King asked the question. And that is, well, all right, if God's so loving, and you can only go to heaven if you'd come to Christ, what about all those people that have never heard about Him? Is this a loving God that would do that? And I love Billy Graham's answer. He didn't argue with him. Don't get into arguments with people. He didn't debate him. Don't get into debates with people. He just said, well, Larry, all I know is this. I just know when each one of us stands before God, we're going to know that what His judgment is is right. That's all I know. That's all I need to know. But we all are going to stand before Him. So he would have been entirely right to just leave us in our sin because we violated his law on our own. Every one of us has done that. But he didn't do that. He sent Christ to redeem us out of our sin and to, and to pay the price so we don't have to go to hell. Is that good news to you? I, just, I, don't, I don't seem too excited this morning. Okay. And if that's all he did, we would praise him forever because he didn't have to do that. But he didn't just do that. He gave us His righteousness. And why did He do that? So that He could qualify us, so that He could put His Spirit inside of us. And why did He do that? So that He could literally make us into His children. You literally are God's child if you are in Christ. And everything He's talking about here 
is the response that we have as a child of God to being a child of a holy God. That's all this is. It's not that God has a bunch of rules and regulations say, if you cross that line, I'm going to whack you. What He's saying is, this is what I've done for you. I've shed my son's blood so that I could make you my child, born again, born in my image, with my nature in you, and all I'm expecting you to do is act like who you are. Isn't that what we do with our children? We just expect them to act like who they are. All right, so that's what he's talking about here. Oh, I can tell this is very popular. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it does not know Him. Beloved, now, say now. Now Now we are children of God. Not when you get to heaven. Not when you get your life straightened out. Not when you overcome whatever you may be in bondage to right now. Now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But this much we know, that when He's revealed, that's what we're talking about, we shall be like Him. So we know that when He comes back, we're going to realize, whoa, we're like Him. Well, that shouldn't be shocking. He's our elder brother. Romans 8 says we're joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Joint heirs meaning we're Siblings, spiritual siblings. He is your brother, just as I'm your brother and just as the person sitting next to you is your brother or sister. But he's our elder brother. So when he comes back, we're going to realize, first of all, oh, we're like him. We don't know quite what it's going to be, because we haven't seen what that is yet, we just know this much. When He comes back, we're going to be like Him. Not outcasts. We're going to be like Him. But there's a responsibility that goes with that. There's a responsibility that goes with being a child of God. Just as there were responsibilities in our family for being a child of Anita and of me. There are certain responsibilities that go with that. We expect certain things of our children because they're our children. We know they can do it, but we expect certain things of them. That's how they grow up. And the vision was that they grow up to be like us in the areas where we wanted them to be like us. (laughs) But in God's case, He doesn't have any areas where He doesn't want you to be like you. Now we are children of God, is not yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Beloved, still talking to the church, <clears throat> now we are the children of God. Excuse me, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So this next thing that we need to do to make sure we're ready is to make sure we're living right before Him. You don't hear a lot about this today. We say, but I've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's more than just saying God sees you as righteous. That means He expects you to act the way He sees you. See, we like the side of the gospel that says, He who knew no sin became sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But you know what that means? That doesn't just mean He gave you His righteousness. He's expecting you to act. I'll talk over here. He's expecting you to act. See, we've lived in a time in the church when all we've heard is what God's done for us. But all we hear is God blesses, God provides, God heals, and He does all those things. Because He's our Father, He loves us, it's the blessing, it's the covenant promise that He's given to us. But there's another whole side of that covenant. Just like there's another whole side of being in our family and being hopefully in your family. That other side is there's some things 
expected and required. We're not going to get there, but John goes on later on and says, and these commandments are not grievous. They're grievous to our flesh. (laughs) But what that means is they're not impossible. They're not hard for us to do. The things God requires of you are not hard to do. They're just hard on one part of you, your flesh. Oh, this is really popular. I can tell this morning. But believe me, it is necessary. It is necessary. So he's given us his righteousness. That's more than just saying that he looks at you and doesn't see all your failures and weaknesses. It also means he's given you his ability to act righteous. Because God would not require something of you he doesn't know you can do. So he's not unjust, he's not unfair, saying, oh, he doesn't understand, I'm just human. That's an excuse. You're not just human. If you're just human, you need to get saved. We use those as excuses. Well, you know, in, in years, I don't know, still, some of your families may do Well, you know, that's, you know that's, um, we're Italian, we're Portuguese. We use our national heritage as an excuse. I don't read that in that book. I don't read that you should act righteous unless you're Italian or Portuguese or whatever it is you may be. I don't find any exceptions in there. Because you see, oh, this is good. When you came to Christ, you changed nationalities. When you came to Christ, you changed families. I hope you changed families because you didn't come to Christ if you didn't change families. Paul says, there's no, in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile. But we're all one because Jesus broke down the dividing wall between us and took the two and made them one. Don't get hung up on your genealogy or your heritage because that's just the heritage of your flesh. The person on the inside who you really are, that's not your heritage anymore. Your heritage is what we're talking about this morning. Your heritage is the righteousness of God. Your heritage is holiness. Your heritage is purity. Your heritage is love. Your heritage is the power and authority of God. That's your heritage. We want the benefits of that. We want the benefits of being in the family, but we don't want the responsibility. There's a term for that. It's called adolescence. I want the car, the keys to the car, but I don't want to put gas in it. I heard a story of a... I heard a story of a, the other day of a father who said, he said my 16, 17-year-old came to me and he said... Uh, Dad, I think it's time for me to live on my own. Okay, son, what do you mean by that? Well, I'd like to move into the basement. And then he said, and I think it's time that I buy my own clothes. And he said there was this awkward moment where we're just kind of staring at each other. And I realized he's expecting something. And and the father says, what? And the son says, what do you mean, what? He says, you said you want to buy your own clothes. And the son says, well, yeah, I need the money. He says, oh, I didn't understand. You meant you want to pick them out. (laughs) And we laugh at that. That's where many of us are. We want to to walk in all that God's done, and he's done them for us. But we want to still do our own thing. Oh, hang on. God, see, God loves you. And here's what He wants for you more than anything else. He wants to see you grow up and me grow up. He wants to see us mature. And maturity is becoming more like your father. Maturity is talking like him. Maturity is acting like him. Maturity is doing the things He does. That's why Jesus told us in in the Sermon on the Mount, 
that pray for those. Bless those that curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. See, the world doesn't understand that. But he tells us why. So that you may be like your father who is in heaven. He's just saying, act like your dad. Grow up. Mature. All right. So everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And here he's going to define what sin is. Sin isn't isn't adultery or fornication. Those are sins. But that's not the essence of what sin is. Sin isn't stealing or lying. Those are sins. Don't don't mishear me. But that's not the... Sin, the essence of sin, is not something you do or don't do. He defines sin here. He said sin is lawlessness. Sin, lawlessness means is I do what I want to do. So what we do is we come to church, we read our Bible, we pray, we do all the things we're supposed to do, and then we see in the Word of God that He commands us to love one another. He commands us to forgive one another. He tells us to do good work and to share and be generous. He tells us to do something, and these are the the things we want to do. Yay, man, preach that! Oh, you need to hear that. And then we turn the page, and we see where he says, if you want to be forgiven, forgive. And we turn that page. Because if we really meditate on that, if God really means what he says... There are a bunch of people in trouble. See, we want the word to mean what it means when it says he'll supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. When it talks about things God will do for us, we, believe, we want to believe the word. It's the truth. But when it comes over to the things he requires of us, then we kind of water it down a little bit and we, we call them, we think of them, we know they're commandments, but we think of them as suggestions. That if we do these things, God will bless us. But, but what, that subtle, what that very subtly does is gives me an out through the back door. Well, if I don't really need that blessing now, I don't have to do it. Getting very quiet in this Presbyterian church. I'm talking to you the way God's been talking to me. We're talking about when He comes, am I going to have confidence when I stand before Him or am I going to shrink back ashamed? Because you see, when he comes, there are no excuses. Well, I meant to do so, and I intended to do this. And See, that's another excuse we have is our intentions. I don't find many places the Bible talks about your intentions, other than the, it says the word sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to divide the thoughts and intentions of the heart, God can discern your thoughts and your intentions and separate them. Say, well, the Bible says God looks on the heart. But if you go back, that's when God's calling David as a young shepherd boy as opposed to his older brothers. And when he says God looks on the heart, he's not saying God looks on David's intentions to do right. What he's saying is God sees the inner desire of his heart to serve God. And that's why he chose him. He didn't choose him because of his outward appearance. We use those as excuses. See, what we do is we, 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 we judge where we are by our intentions and where other people are by what they do. We have two different standards. Romans chapter 2 verse 1 talks about that. And several other places where it says the standard that you use to judge others is the one God's going to use to judge you. Now, if God's word is true when it says... He'll supply all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If that's true, but His Word isn't equally true when it comes to saying, if you don't forgive, He won't forgive you, then God's Word's got a double standard in it. And He's not as righteous as the Word of God says He is. And of course, the answer is, that's not true. His Word is just as true on the things we don't like as it is on the things we do like. So now we have a choice. 
If we admit that, we either adjust to his word or we go on pretending his word isn't true. And the Bible has a term for that. It's called deception. James chapter 1 says that if a man hears the word without the intention of doing it and without then doing it, he has deceived himself. Now, there's lots of opportunities out there for other things to deceive you. Imagine doing it to yourself. But when you see God's word, what he requires of us, and just sort of excuse yourself from that or ignore it, you are entering into self-deceit, which is the most dangerous place to be. God's getting us ready because we're now in a time when some of the things that were loose and could go on before aren't going to be able to go on. It's like your washing machine. If you put too much the rug or something in it and you get a rug on one side and it's going through just the agitation cycle back and forth, no big deal. But when it goes through the spin cycle where it starts going, I don't know how many hundreds of RPMs, now the fact that it's out of balance shows up much more because things are moving faster. Things are moving faster spiritually. Things are moving towards a point, a critical point. And the closer we get to that, the more critical it is that we're doing what's right in God's eyes and we're living right in God's eyes. And that we're not walking in deception, but we're walking in truth. So much of the, of the book of 1 John is about walking in the light. It says in the beginning, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, real fellowship with one another. That's what the connect groups are about. We have real fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But if we're not walking in the light, His blood can't cleanse us because we don't admit we need it. Now, we're not talking about being perfect here. That's why I wanted to spend a few moments and talk about what sin is lawlessness, not perfection. God's not requiring perfection. That's the goal. That's where He's reaching us towards. But it, the real root of sin is, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't want to come to God. I don't want to confess my sin. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to tithe. I want to do what I want to do. That's the root of sin. Okay. Verse 5, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. I'll explain that in a minute. Whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God does not sin, for his seed... God's seed, His nature, remains in Him and He cannot sin because He's been born of God. That does not say, does not say, that does not say that if you're born of God, you can't sin. Otherwise, would, why would 1 John 1, 9 be there saying that what He's talking about here is the practice of sin. What he's talking about here is the sin of lawlessness. I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what I want to do and you can't tell me what to do. That's the sin he's talking about here. What he's saying is if you are born of God, you're going to begin to act like him. If you can go through life saying you're born of God and sin doesn't bother you, then there's something wrong. I'm not saying you're not saved, but there's something wrong. Something's wrong because it's not getting through to you. If we sin, there should be such a conviction in us. And we do. We're all, you know... But my goal is to get to the place where I don't. And I'm much better now than I was before. But here's the point, And this is really what I believe the Spirit of God's after. There's so many Christians, quote-unquote Christians, living in the body of Christ, just basically doing what they want to do. I'm ashamed to say there are many people standing in pulpits just doing what they want to do. I've seen instances of men stand in front of the pulpit and say, you know, God's told me that He's given me a new wife. So I thank my wife of 40 years for her service and now God's given me this 20-year-old. Listen to me. And the congregation bought it. 
Something's wrong. Something's wrong. It's becoming more and more common now for people who claim to be Christians living together, man and woman, who are not in the bonds of covenant marriage. Well, oh, but the society's doing it. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Society's doing it. But wait a minute here. It says that it's not society that's coming back. Society's here. Well, everybody else is doing it, but, but they're not the one you're going to stand in front of. See, I have a simplistic way of looking at things, and it probably goes back to my legal training. It's this. If I'm going to stand before the judge and represent you, I don't care what you think if you're my client. I don't care what I think. I don't care what the other lawyer thinks. I don't even care whether what we think is right or wrong. All that I can argue to that judge is what the law says. Because that's what he's bound to make the decision on. So i got to go into the law and find out what the law says and argue that my client's case fits within that law because that's what he's going to make the decision based on. So if I'm going to have to stand before the judge... I want to know what he requires. Not what everybody else is doing. Because guess what? They're all going to stand there too. And when I stand before him, I can't say, well, she did it. I can't use my wife as an excuse. I can't use anybody as an excuse. So I have to go to what does he require of me? And that's the standard that I'm using in my life. Am I perfect? No. But boy, it shakes things out. There are some things I've had to do over this last year I didn't want to do. But I did them literally out of the fear of the Lord. Not afraid of Him, but recognizing I'm going to stand before Him. And I had to picture myself, how am I going to explain to Him why I didn't do that? I remember years ago, I remember years ago watching, uh, 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 and some of you aren't old enough to remember, some of you are, when, when, the, when the Watergate scandal hit. I remember seeing a young lawyer, his name was John Dean, and at the time he was a young lawyer, and he was a young guy working in the White House. He probably figured, boy, what a great privilege it is to work here. This is going to look great on my resume. You know, I'm just doing what I'm told. And he had people of great power telling him what to do and not do. And he just went along with the crowd. Feeling, I'm part of the crowd. I'm part of the group. Not only that, the the, the precedent's over me. So I'm nice and safe. I'm just going along. It's always easy to go along with the crowd. Never dreaming that there was going to come a moment when he would sit, listen to me carefully, alone, not just in front of a Senate committee, but in front of international television and have to answer questions that look very different in that context than those issues looked when they were sitting in private rooms and everybody around him was doing the same thing. So you're with a group of people and they say, you know, hey, who's going to know? Who's going to know? I'm sure he thought that too. But the Bible tells us, whereas he didn't have a warning, we do. God's preparing us. So the fact that everybody else is shacking up, you can't find that and bring that in front of God and say, well, God, everybody else was doing it. Because he says sin is lawlessness. If we want to be confident when he comes back, we need to be living right when he comes back. Say, what is that? Well, your conscience knows if it isn't seared. That's why you need to read the word because 
your spirit will show you in the Word of God what it is you need to do. But there's some things, there's no discernment required. They're called the Ten Commandments. Not the Ten Suggestions. Not the Ten Requirements. The Ten Commandments. All right. We better move along. This is good news. All right. Let's go over to Titus chapter 2. Where is Titus? It's right in front of Philemon. that help you? Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. See, grace teaches us something. Grace doesn't just mean that you can do what you want to do and get away with it and the blood of Jesus covers you. Grace should teach us something. Grace is so much more than God's unmerited favor. So here we see grace is to teach us something. That means there's some things we need to learn. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. That doesn't just mean you don't get drunk. That means awake, alert, serious, righteously, and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance, appearing of our great God and Shepherd, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. That He might redeem us from every lawless deed. Let's go over to Second um, Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 11, I'm going to read a bunch of scripture here, but, I'm, but, but um, and the context is a little different, but it, it leads up to where we're going to go. O Corinthians, by the way, the church he wrote this to was one of the churches he had the most problems with. They were the most spiritual church that he had that we know of. I mean, the gifts of the Spirit flowed in wonderful power and abundance. See, people, and you've heard me teach this before, people get confused. They think that the spiritual gifts prophecy and, and all, tongues and all these things are God's badge of honor for how spiritual we are. But here we see the most unspiritual church, the most immature church that Paul had, the gifts were flowing in the greater, greatest abundance because God, the Spirit of God doesn't pour the gifts out because you're holy. He pours them out because you're open. Because the gifts aren't given for you. The gifts are given so that God through you can touch somebody else. Character, integrity, faithfulness. The fruit of the Spirit is the measure of your spirituality, of your maturity. Because it's in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to them what I mentioned to you earlier. He says, you're, you, the way you're acting, which is in envy, jealousy, and strife, you're acting like mere men. In other words, you're acting human. That wasn't a compliment. All right. So, this is the same church. It's a little later. This is after they refused to let him in the church. That, by the way, he founded. O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Verse 12. You are not restricted by us, for you are restricted by your own affections. I don't want to get into all that. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, we use that for marriage. You know, don't marry somebody that's not a Christian. But that doesn't just mean don't marry somebody who's not a Christian. Marry somebody who's, not, who's going in the same spiritual direction you're going. Don't just pull him here and say, you know, he's 6'2", 
muscular, handsome, and, he's, and, and here he is, and he got saved Sunday, because I told him if he doesn't get saved, we can't get married. So he saved, Pastor, now you can marry us. This isn't some legal requirement. It's a principle God's saying. How can you be joined together to somebody when you're joined to them? You're now joined. And whatever their heart's going, that's going to pull at your heart. And we're not talking now about your income, the house you're going to live in. We're talking about spiritual maturity and spiritual forever. All right. It's going to be a fun year, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, it's going to be exciting. For what fellowship, what communion has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Baliol? That's Satan. Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For This is what I want you to see. For you are the temple, the dwelling place of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. He's dwelling in you right now if you're in Christ. And walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore... Because of that, because of who you are, because I dwell in you, because of that, verse 17, come out from among them. It doesn't mean go sit on a mountaintop and go into a monastery. There may be people God calls to do that, but there are other places where Christ talks about if you do that, then you're pulling yourself out of the world and you're in the world to affect the world. How can you be affecting the world if you're sitting on a mountaintop all by yourself, you and God? Not only that, the Bible tells us you can't really find out where you are spiritually just with you and God. It's the way you live it out with one another. I'm not going to get off on that anymore. But what he's saying here is, Therefore come out from among them and be separate. He's talking about how you live your life, not where you live it. Oh, that's good. Don't act like everybody else. We're called to be separate Different. Why? Because he's separate and he's different. And please, I don't mean this in any way disrespectful. But imagine if you saw a picture of Jesus in in a bar with one leg over a bar stool and a drink in his hand. I mean, the thought of that just goes... Because it doesn't fit your image of him, does it? And yet it shouldn't fit our image of ourselves either. Come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, see this is a continuous, the same thought. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, of God. Let's go over to... um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go back. Now Paul has just said here, we're going to start in verse 9. Paul has just said here that, that he's confident. He's talking about, you know, I can't decide whether to go to heaven or not. Not ultimately, but now. He's writing. Because he's basically saying, my whole, my whole vision is on heaven. That's my home. And he said, that's why we walk by faith and not by sight. Because I'm walking by faith in, in the promises God's made about heaven, and I'm not moved by what I see going on around me in terms of my own personal life. Now verse 9. Therefore, because of that, because what he said in verse 8, Therefore we're confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, talking about going to heaven, seeing the Lord, whether present or absent. That's interesting. So it's not just when he's present with God, standing before him, but even when he's not present with him. So this applies to what we're talking about here. So when he comes back, that's not when we get our act together. Oh, excuse me, Lord, I got some things I've got to straighten out. Hold it a minute. He's not going to hold it a minute. So he's saying, 
whether the Lord's physically here or not, or I'm physically in His presence or not, or I'm absent with Him, it doesn't matter. There's a famous quote of somebody, I remember who it is, that integrity is what you do when nobody is looking and nobody else will ever know. Otherwise, it's what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. Okay. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He's done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men and are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Now, I've looked that up and studied the terror of the Lord. I've tried to find some way that it doesn't say that. But it does. I'm talking about going to the Greek. It doesn't mean to be afraid of God in the sense of He's going to hit me with a stick. But it means there is an awesome reality to His righteousness and His holiness. There's an awesome reality to it that Paul says, I live my life aware of what that's going to be like to stand in the presence of His absolute truth and absolute holiness. Now, there's no way that you're... You know, when we say there's no way. That, 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 that He's not talking about perfection here. What he's talking about, again, he's talking about your commitment to, do, to live right in front of him. He's talking about your... Because your, it's down in the heart is our motives. And so, so if, you're, if you're doing your, if you're, if you're responsive to His Word, when He corrects you, you say, Oh Lord, you're, I'm sorry, I judge myself for that. But if you keep saying, No, I want to do what I want to do. I want to live the way I want to live. That's really what He's talking about here. That's really what He's talking about here. Alright, now, I want to, I want to straighten something out. I'll go with me over to Romans chapter 8. Because I want to clarify something here. Romans chapter 8 starts with this very comforting verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Alright, you see that? Now go with me over to um, oh boy where is it First John three and this is not in my notes so the translators may not have this Verse 19, And we know by this that we are of the truth and assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. Now, how do you line that up with Romans 8.1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They're two different words. The word condemn here is a word that means to know yourself and to recognize the things in you that are wrong. That's what this means. The word condemn in Romans 8, 1, that says when you're in Christ, there's no condemnation, that word means ultimate judgment of God. So in John, when he's talking about condemned and ashamed, he's not talking about God's ultimate judgment separating you from Him. He's talking about shrinking back in shame when He comes. So we said, well, yeah, as long as I'm not going to go to hell, that's all I count. Yeah, that may be, seem good to you now. Because your goal may be just to get into heaven. Pastor Sam used to call it a fire insurance policy. And there's some people that their to- coattails are still kind of smoking when they come in. Okay? That may happen to some because the Bible does talk about some. You will literally rescue out of the fire. So the hell. 
But we don't want to be like that. You don't want to be one that just, I made it. Because guess what? Now that you're there, now there's all of eternity in front of you. Now you're living with the fact that you just barely made it. Understand that in heaven, there are all kinds of responsibilities and things that we're to do. The Bible says that we're going to, some of us are going to rule over angels and judge. We're going to have responsibilities and things. The Bible's full of teachings along those lines. And what you do here in terms of your faithfulness to Him, and we're going to talk more about that on one of the other things for being ready. What you do here determines what He's going to trust you with there. So it's not just, I want to make it. I'm assuming we're all going to make it, that you all want to make it and not go, I just barely made it. We're talking about being ready for now what? So, okay, I'm glad there's now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But let's, hopefully, we're past that. But now there's this thing of confidence before Him. And ultimately, the reward is going to be we're all going to be given crowns for what we do here. And then you know what you do with those crowns? You get to throw them at His feet. And see, in earthly thinking, what's that big deal? Suppose I don't have a crown to throw at His feet but you won't want to know what it's like to be in His presence, to have this overwhelming desire to worship Him and have things to give to Him and to realize I had nothing to bring to Him when I could have had other crowns to give to Him. That's where the shame, not ashamed of your, not, not, it's not condemnation, not judgment. It's just there to, to, that if we've not done, if we've not lived right, to shrink back from Him and face Him recognizing I never judge myself for these things. And I don't want to get into there. But there's ultimately a point, if you never do, your heart can get so hardened that you can end up making choices and decisions I don't want to get into right now. But they're catastrophic. Sin is so important. There's no such thing as a little sin. Just like there's no such thing as a little poison. It may not, though, that, that drop of arsenic may not be enough to kill you, but it doesn't do your body good. Your body has to overcome, and some of your bodies are still having to overcome things you put in your body before you were saved. One sin may not kill you. One sin may not destroy you, but it begins to do things in your heart that begins to create it. I heard this definition of sin. It was by... Uh, I think it was the Wesley brothers' mother. Sin is anything that separate that, that sends between you and God. Anything that pulls you away from God and does not draw you towards God. If you live by that one, you'll do fine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness in our lives, that you love us so much that you tell us the truth. Now we ask your grace and the Holy Spirit inside of us to help us to face the truth about ourselves. Not under condemnation, not under fear, but to face the reality that there may be things in our life right now that we know about that are not right before you. You're preparing us for your return. Help us to face them. Help us to judge them and help us to release them. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Spirit who lives in us, whose one of his roles is to convict us or convince us of sin. Holy Spirit, I ask you in my life and in everyone's life here this morning that you would do that so that we may be free of it, that we may have fellowship with one another, and that the blood of Jesus may cleanse us from all sin. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to get the CD and listen to it again and ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Second thing is, don't go on some witch hunt in your life trying to uproot things and pull them up. The Bible doesn't teach us to do that. The Bible tells us that God's given us His Spirit and His Spirit's role, one of His roles is to convict us of sin. And so, in most cases, if there's something God's been trying to get at today, 
you already know what it is. You don't need to go looking for it. You already know what it is. Say, well, I don't feel anything. Well, then praise God. Just be open to the Lord showing you what it may be.